In today's episode, Mark Bylock will be trying to record using the Internaut. Welcome to The Whiskey Topic, the weekly podcast that focuses on a topic every week, and we tend to get off topic. My name is Mark Bylock, the author of The Whiskey Cabinet. My co-host is Jamie Johnson, who runs a private but approachable bourbon club here in Toronto, Canada. Today's topic is single malt scotch, and our guest, Sam Simons, is a little far away from us. He's in Paris, France, and his audio quality was a little troubled because of hotel Wi-Fi. Uh, my apologies for the sound quality. Thank you so much, and enjoy the show. So we have someone on the show today. Um, we had Davin to talk about Canadian whiskey. Today we have Sam to talk about scotch. Now, Sammy, many of you know, might be, um, many whiskey fans know as Dr. Whiskey, and he used to write on, well, he still does write on the blog, but as, not as often because, you know, he has a day job now. <laughs> um, but uh, Sam uh, writes for, uh, is known as Dr. Whiskey Online. You can Google him, you'll find him. Um, he's also the Belvini Global Ambassador. So, Sam, welcome to the show. What a joy to be here via technology with you in Canada. Yay, we're so happy to have you. The nightmare of this scenario technically is we're uh, recording via Skype. Sam is somewhere in Paris on a hotel Wi-Fi, and we're uh, huddling around one mic with a whiskey, <laughs> a couple <laughs> of whiskeys between us. So <laughs> we got here, though. We got here. So Sam, I mostly, I must, I, Sam and I go uh, far back. Sam's actually from Toronto. It's, uh, he used to live in Toronto. He used to live in the UK, which is um, how he got into whiskey to begin with. Um, but uh, we, we've met uh, a bunch of times over the years. Um, but Sam, you wrote an article recently about four or five months ago about Japanese whiskey versus scotch. I love that. You wrote an article recently, four or five months ago. That's... Uh says a lot about the frequency in which I'm posting on Dr. Whiskey, but yes. I was being very passive-aggressive. I was being very passive-aggressive. Like, why aren't you writing more, Sam? Why? Oh, it's nice. It is nice when people say write more, but no thanks. Anyway, when I'm stirred enough, I, I tend to, which is, which is what happened uh, whenever this was, when Jim Murray was launching his uh, Malt Whiskey Yearbook. It was at the end of last year, just in time for Christmas. You would think he was a business person. <laughs> um, but he, yeah, I mean, you know, he, he was launching a book, and the book's primary objective is to sell copies, as you know, Mark. Um, so, yeah, and also he's a Fleet Street journalist, and so did quite well at getting some press around the release of the book by making statements uh, along the lines of, that scotch whiskey isn't very innovative anymore and, and by not awarding any scotches in the top five best whiskeys of the year. So yeah, that, that, that got a lot of activation and a lot of interaction online, social media and different bloggers and everyone had an opinion and had tastings, people were asking me about it. So that, and yeah, I, I was uh, called, I guess, by a couple of journalists first to give any thoughts I had. And then I just wrote this little piece. I had something to send to journalists really and then just put it on Dr. Whiskey. Uh, yeah. yeah, and I mean, I think uh, Jim Murray's been criticized often. If not for anything, it's um, the that there's just one palette that really seems to have a lot of media pull, which is great on him. I mean, good good for him for having that media pull. Um, but there's been, you know, there's a lot of a lot of awards being given out throughout the year where it's blind tastings and where it's you know, 12, 15, 20, sometimes more different uh, whiskey drinkers enjoying whiskey and rating it blindly. Um, that wasn't the case. Uh, you know, Jim Murray doesn't taste this whiskey blind as far as we know. Um, but it's also one palate that decides 
that's not only decides, I mean, because he can decide what he wants for his book, but the fact that it's got all this much media pull. Yeah, well, of course. I mean, everyone loves the story that uh, David and Goliath or that Japan's taking over the world or that Russia's wealthier than America or whatever the story is. Something that, something that sells a good tale is what Jimmy has a background in. And, and I agree with you. I've given all the respect in the world for being able to muster all this interest for a little book from a man humble enough to call it a Bible. So, yeah. <laughs> um, we, we have a lot of listeners that don't like Jim Murray, so uh, you're, you're feeding them right there. You're right on there, Sam. <laughs> no, um, more seriously, I, um, I, I, so I've, I've got this theory. You, you can tell me I'm completely wrong, by the way. Please, please feel free to disagree with me. Um, I have a theory. Um, single malt scotch has been in demand in, for so many, so many years, and um, we've been seeing this in every industry where like, for example, you know, uh, in this podcast, we talked about, uh, Elmer T. Lee, how this is this amazing bourbon that we all enjoyed in Canada and the U S and it's probably made its way to the UK and other places. And it's just bourbon became so popular. Elmer T. Lee is now just, just being sold in the U S it is barely leaving Kentucky because it's become so popular. The demand's so big. Um, that's what they've, that's what they've got. Um, scotch has been in this territory forever. When I went to Scotland, I tasted really amazing, incredible, unique whiskeys that I will never get in Canada because they're either being released by distilleries, being released just to specific stores. Um, and and uh, Japanese whiskey had really undergone this phase before Jim Murray named it the number one whiskey in the world where it wasn't big enough that you know, uh, there were some really good single malt Scot- single malt Japanese whiskeys that were making it out of Japan, making it to North America. You know, we were enjoying them in Canada and the U.S. Um, the moment Jim Murray's book gave it uh, the number one, uh, prices went up 30%. Um, some of like, you know, a great product like uh, uh, Nikai Yochi, 12-year-old uh, single malt. Really great whiskey at um, I don't know eighty dollars was a great price point for it. It started selling for one hundred and twenty dollars, and now it's only available in Japan. And now nobody else is going to be able to get it, other than unless if you live in Japan. Um, so is part of it just availability of good liquor that like a lot of countries, the best liquor they have, they rarely ever makes it out of the country. Wow, Mark! Like reading your book, there are a lot of points there. Uh, so. Let me let me let me pick one to start with. Just yeah, start with you want. Uh, the first. I, I'm not taking it in any order possible. I, I can't give as as long as I can remember some of the points you're making. But uh, let's let's start with the end because that's the least what I remember. The, the yeah, so an important thing I think to remember is about Japanese Japanese whiskey and the evolution of Scotch whiskey, which is where you started. Scotch whiskey in the '60s boomed. So we're, we're, not, we're talking about something maybe similar to what you're saying about Elmer T. Lee, but we're talking about distilleries, not just one distillery, not just one brand, distilleries all over Scotland, not only doubling their capacity, but multiplying it by a factor of 10 in some cases. So distilleries that had only two stills today have 10, 18, 16, maybe just eight, but you know, we're talking about multiplying uh, your capacity by, by at least double in a lot of cases in Scotland through the 60s. So that's across all of the industry. That's not just one brand again. So that's, that's an important thing. I think Scotland has already had this, this sort of boom period and has still maintained interests all these years. Yes, there was a, a slow period in the 80s uh, and even the late 70s when some distilleries were closed, but uh, generally Scotch has had that boom already. That relates to the Japanese as well, because I think what's interesting, and you were saying at the end there, is that in Japan, most of the whiskey they were 
producing was really for domestic markets. It was enough to supply the need locally, and taxation was so high on imported spirits, scotch in particular, uh, that it satisfied the need. It was a cheaper alternative. You could buy blended Japanese whiskies. You could buy single malt Japanese whiskies. Um, but the export, the, the global awareness of Japanese whiskey is really a relative, relatively new thing, and that's mainly because Japanese whiskey was falling out of fashion in Japan. So they needed the export markets to sustain their growth and, and to use the production the same way that uh, malt whiskey emerged in the 70s in Scotland because blended whiskey was falling out of style. They needed to differentiate. They needed to be innovative and try something new. So that's why we've heard of these Japanese whiskeys. And now uh, after about a 10-year uh, stretch of pushing the you know, highball drink, um, in, in Japan, it's fashionable again. You can get it on tap. Whiskey is whiskey with with soda is a thing that young people and old drink. But whiskey is being consumed more at home than ever before. So now, right when it's getting critical acclaim, like it has in the Jim Murray Bible and other places, uh, it's getting pulled back. And it is it, it is about supply and demand as well. Yeah, I I really do. I think the um, you know I think bourbon has this advantage in uh, price point wise, right? Because uh, bourbon's pretty cheap compared to scotch um, and Japanese whiskey was on par with scotch price-wise give or take um, but now yeah I mean I, I don't know I don't see a lot of Japanese whiskey I could recommend that that's really available in the North American marketplace I mean maybe uh, is it any how is it there in Scotland like what's what's your um, uh, how, do you guys get a lot of Japanese whiskey there well, there's more Japanese whiskey in the UK than there was 10 years ago let's say um, there's a specific importer who brings it in and there are, there are a few actually but there's one who sort of popularized it and made it more readily available within the uk uh, but even still i think we, we see only a fraction of what's available in japan uh and, and in france actually even here there's this quite, it's quite fashionable you do see that it's imported here as well but i think maison de whiskey but there's quite a Japanese whiskey presence, but I still I think the, the overall volume is world smaller than than bourbon or scotch. Okay, so you sort of have the benefit of being in a spot that um, you can get a lot more scotch than we can <laughs> over here. What's 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 the most sort of exciting, fashionable one that you're seeing over there right now? Well, fashionable whiskey, I don't know. Well, I think what, what, what it is interesting is I think probably similar to what you have there where flavored whiskeys are all the rage. Really? Well, Jim, Jim and I were just talking about how like, you know, single malt scotch is more about the subtle flavors and less about like forward flavorful whiskey. Um, so that's why. Surprise. Yeah. Oh, no. So, sorry. So with scotch. No, no, no. So scotch whiskey isn't allowed to do that. I mean, right now we have examples of big brands within Scotch whiskey trying to get into the game of the cinnamon ball or whatever. What, no, is that even what it's called? Fireball, sorry. Fireball. And, Fireball. Uh, uh, whatever, apple, you know, like the honey, Jim Beam honey and all, all that kind of stuff. So Scotch is trying to get in on that. Um, not that I count that as innovation, for goodness sake. But anyway, uh, Scotch is trying to get in on that in, with some brands. So blended brands like Valentine's has a lime one. Famous Gross, I think, has a, uh, not ginger, it's, I forget what it's called now. But there are, anyway, there are different ones. There are flavored ones out there, but the interesting thing is 
we don't allow them to call it whiskey because you're trading on a brand name that is associated with whiskey and then I think that's a bit unfair. So um, to do it in the name of innovation, to say that we're, oh, Scotland's missing out on a big growth market, I, I think is a bit ridiculous to jump on a, a quick growth market. Otherwise you can end up like cupcake vodka. Yeah, no, we're, we're uh, very, very critical of uh, in the U.S. them calling like cream liqueur made with Buffalo Trace, straight bourbon, or Knob Creek, straight bourbon flavored with honey smoke maple, or whatever, yeah. or maple, or I mean, at least Fireball. I mean, you know you're not drinking whiskey when you're drinking Fireball, but it does say whiskey on the bottle. So in the U.K., does it not say whiskey on a bottle of Fireball? Or do you even get Fireball? You can get it. I'm not sure what it says, though, because within Europe, it would be illegal unless it had the minimum age requirement. Right. And I think it's unlikely. It's for, like, for example, Bailey's Irish cream doesn't say whiskey anywhere on it. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. Uh, you know, we, we mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago how uh, Canadian whiskey has added flavoring, whether that be sherry or, you know, wine. Um, you know, typically not very much, typically like a percent or two, but... Um, that kind of whiskey doesn't sell in Europe because um, it can't be called whiskey, um, and it wouldn't sell in all of Europe. And that's a you know not, not one of those things like topics that we always talk about, like how whiskey changes from country to country and how definitions change and what the traditions are. Um, but I think also like the other thing is we're not just talking about added flavor, but we're just talking about like very bold flavor flor forward whiskeys. So you know like bourbons, like high proof bourbons give you you know straight straight bourbon, so no flavoring added, but do give you a lot of initial flavor. Um, and those are really becoming very uh, popular. Like that's where the palates seem to be going. Is they people like those forward flavor whiskeys? Well, especially vanilla. I remember like our someone who works at our distillery, Leslie Gracie, saying that we love vanilla. We're all born. To mothers and whether we're on milk or on the bottle that's one of the first flavors we feel comfort and love with so vanilla forward flavors are naturally going to be popular with with people so yeah that's one thing i mean maturing in oak helps that but i remember there was not too long maybe a couple years ago dave broom the whiskey writer wrote a piece of thing in whiskey magazine about flavored whiskey but what he was saying, the point was about, um, if I remember correctly, the point was about all these distilleries using first fill American oak bourbon, uh, and that's actually going to reduce the amount of variety and flavor because that's going to make whiskeys taste more similar than different, uh, which I thought was interesting. So it's it's going for that, that big vanilla kick, which is fine. I mean, we we do it uh, with the distillery I work with and. I like that style of whiskey personally, and I, I do think in the young ages, the, the house style can still come through, but, but that is as close to flavoring as we really get in Scotch whiskey, is choosing the type of casks, choosing the amount of time, and that, those are both the, the variables we're allowed. Yeah, um, so uh, you know, every uh, every week we on the podcast, we talk about what whiskeys we're drinking. Uh, Sam, do you want to tell us what, what you're drinking today? Not really. I don't want to promote these guys. Jesus, please. <laughs> I'm in France. I'm in France, and I, I went to the, walked to the, the, the store. It's interesting is that France is one of the biggest markets in the world for, for Scotch whiskey. So I think it's still through that um, in France they drink a, as much Scotch whiskey as in a month as they do cognac in a year. So it's a real volume product here, especially the supermarket end. So I, I was at the supermarket here, and I saw a, a product called Glen Turner. I had no age statement but it was finished in Madeira casks, and the name they chose to use was the Balvenie name, Doublewood. So I thought I would try it. 
So I grabbed it, and that's what's in my teeth. Isn't that uh, copyright? Doublewood copyright? <laughs> um, it, it, within you, yeah, I mean, it, I don't think um, the family, William Grant, like the, yeah, the family has copyrighted in every country. Right. Uh, I'm not sure the legal position, but certainly in Europe, that would be a problem. So, um, so you're saying you really shouldn't be drinking this I'm drink sure right now? Well, well, you know me. I'm a, I'm a whiskey enthusiast, so I had to buy a bottle. What if it's worth money in ten years? Well, and Sam, that's why we we have you on the show because I mean, I know you work for Grandsons, but I also I've always known you. Whenever we've talked about whiskey, you've always talked about other brands and whiskey in general. And I know you're a big Scotch drinker, um, so I've always I've always known you to be able to give me an, uh, a solid opinion. Um, and plus, we both enjoy Belvinie and Glenfiddich, so I feel like there's no loss here. No, no, it's all it's all good. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, it's hard it's hard to be sold uh, a product for someone who doesn't drink it, you know, or doesn't appreciate it. No, no, I, I came I came to whiskey out of passion, and you too. I mean, you, you get drawn to something when you care about it. So I, I I love the history, I love the taste, I love all the distilleries of Scotland. At least, um, yeah. So. Most people who like whiskey, as you know, have more than one bottle open at home, and that's definitely true in my case as well. So, yeah, I'm a big fan, big fan of the scotch. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what do you think of the Glen Turret? Um, this tastes like very immature whiskey masked with a nice sweetness that you uh, get from Madeira, uh, Madeira wine. So it's... Uh, it's, it's not the most pleasant thing in the world, but it was like 18 euros, which is just shocking. Wow. Normally people pick whiskey that they, but I mean, you're, to be fair, you're at the hotel. So you're like, I happen to, I, I go to Sam, by the way, Sam, you need to drink whiskey because that's what we do on the show. And he's like, all I've got is this bottle I happen to pick <laughs> the up grocery store. <laughs> from my hotel room in Paris. Um, well, you'll be happy to know I'm drinking the, um, the Belvini Caribbean cast, which you know I've loved for, for many, many years. Um, also one of my favorites. I yeah. Oh, 14 years uh, aged and finished off in... I, I love this story. It's like they, they took giant casks, they put rum in them, a blend of 50 different rums, and they poured out the rum. Bah, rum. And then they poured in the Belvini, uh, Belvini single malt and just let it mature there for a little while. And boom, then you get the Belvini Caribbean cast. Just a great bottle with a single malt scotch. We talk about like a good uh, scotch introduced to non-scotch drinkers, a great one because um, it, it has a little bit of that tiny bit of that kind of rum sweetness you're used to, but just so barely there, but it gives you kind of like an introduction to single malts and the single malt sweetness and kind of a lighter oaked uh, whiskey. Um, yeah, very, very much enjoy. And I've been a big fan for, for the longest time. You know, I'm a geek, so there's something even cooler about that story. The way you just described it is accurate, except, uh, so the rums, so yeah, David selects different rums. We buy it from a broker in the UK, and he, we put it into casks. But we, we use it to treat the casks several times, like, say, five or six times before it's no longer giving quite what we want. It's already, it's getting too woody itself. But if you think about it, that rum is in there six times sitting in wood. It's getting quite oaky. So when we, we are finished with using it for for preparing the cast for us it's a dark rum and it tastes really nice about it but so we sell it back to the broker so we bought the stuff or basically basically it's cost neutral we've taken the stuff from the broker matured it 
essentially for them, sell it back to them, and then they sell it on for whatever product or spice drum or whatever they use it for. But I think it's quite cool. There's like this, again, in Scotch whiskey, not just artists, but all around, there's this tradition of this agricultural tradition of like being efficient, using things wisely and reusing them. That's, that's what informed the whole decision of how to do this. And, you know, David Stewart's been there 50 years, so he's been doing it the same way for a long time. So that was one of the ways he looked at it, like, hey, how can we do this? Let's, let's use it six, seven times and and then send, sell it back to the brokers. There's really no added cost to us, which I think is geeky and cool. What are you drinking, Jamie? Well, Mark poured it for me. I've, I've, um, it's from the, uh, Scalt, the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, so I've, I need to know more about this. Honestly, you guys, I feel like it's, you know, when you just, um, there's two people that really know what they're talking about and you just decide to like sit back and listen and try to absorb some of their <laughs> smarts. I feel like that's what I'm doing right now. So, um, I, I actually need Mark to introduce the one that I'm drinking because sure. it's delicious and I've already finished a glass of it. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> well, Sam, you're a member of the Scott Society, uh, Malt Whiskey Society, correct? Yeah, that's one of the sort of places or groups of the communities I joined when I first really got into whiskey. When I lived in Edinburgh. I joined, yeah, I joined the society and I think this is my second year living in Scotland. All right. Well, we'll, we'll let you explain uh, what the society is uh, a little bit more. This is, I mean, I don't know they, they release a lot of whiskey. I don't know if you remember this one offhand. It's uh, the Jamaican rum top, the 73.57. Um, it's a single cast. Um, don't know much more about it. Bottled at 55.7%. <laughs> Uh, refill barrel ex bourbon. So they, they use code. So basically, the society started uh, for probably over 20 years ago. I'm not sure. I'm sorry if that's wrong. Uh, but in Edinburgh, with some people who were keen whiskey drinkers and they wanted to have their own casks. So they spoke to family distillers at Glen Farkless and said, Hey, can we have a cask? And the Farkless said, Yeah, sure. Yeah, here's what it costs, blah, blah, blah. So they, they got their friends together. They bought the cask, but the, the family, uh, Glen Farkless said, Great, you can bottle it, you can share it with your friends, share it with your members, but you cannot call it Glen Farkless. So, key-minded people, uh, they called it uh, number one. So, one dot one. And then when they got a distillery, when they got a cast from Bowmore, when they got a cast from Highland Park, they called it two, they called it three, they called it four, and so on. So, each cast, they they got from a different distillery, got associated uh, a number. Each distillery got associated numbers. So one was Glen Farkless, two was Glen Livet, three was Bowmore, four was Highland Park, et cetera, et cetera. And then with each successive cash that they got from the distilleries, that was the second number. So that's that's all more. That's 73 dot what? 57. Wow. So think about that, man. Over the past 20 years, they've bottled 57 casts of Altmore, plus every other distillery they bottled. It's, that's pretty crazy. So it's, yes, so now it's, it's grown into a global... Um, community, I guess, a club of people who used to be pay membership and, and it entitles you to the right to attend Scotch Home Society events uh, and also to buy into the bottles that are available quarterly, I believe. And then that's international now because Kelly, the, the Canadians basically brought it to Canada. Friends and I met in Edinburgh and shared a geeky whiskey passion with from, in our years there. So it's great that they brought it to Canada. Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's a fascinating story and uh it it like you said it is coming to canada i, I heard they had a secret meeting in toronto 
wasn't supposed to say anything. <laughs> anyway, they had a secret meeting in Toronto a couple of weeks ago, but I just don't think it'll come to Ontario because of the LCBO. Um, it's likely not going to happen. Um, Sam, what are your, um, I know uh, Belvinian Grant & Sons, they don't do any, as far as I know, they don't do any no-age statement whiskeys, but what's what's your opinion generally on the no-age statement whiskey trends in from coming out of Scotland? Which, which by the way, I should say, um, you know, bourbon generally is no-age statement. Um, you know, a lot of bourbons that have had age statements on them are, those age statements are disappearing. Uh, Japanese whiskey, also They've been some 10, 12-year-old whiskeys that no longer have age statements. So this is very much a trend throughout the whiskey world. Again, we talk about supply and demand. Uh, but really, Scotland seems to take the biggest brunt for this, uh, for having no age statement whiskey. Uh, what, what are your opinions on this? I think it's tricky because obviously I work for a Scotch whiskey company, and I, I can answer in that capacity, and I can answer as Sam. So I, in, in a work capacity, I know the brand, the brand I work for, the company I work for, we think that age is important and for Balvenie we have no intention of taking age off because it's a it's still after 30 years of educating the consumer to how to navigate a pretty confusing category right scotch whiskey with crazy names ben ria tamatin bona haven you know tamdu it's always weird names it's it's hard enough to navigate without a comparative price point um so yeah i'm all for at work i'm all i'm always in the in the uh age statement camp and so is david stewart so are all the guys in the in the process so that's good um but also I, I think just as a whiskey lover that the strange thing about going to no age statements is, is that it's important to remember that when whiskey first started appearing there, there wasn't really much age uh, boasted about on the labels um it was you know i, I have a bottle of a blended whiskey and I mean, I'm sorry, first of all, that's why Johnny Walker had different colors, because that, that, that gave you an idea that it was old, extra old Highland Scotch whiskey. But I, I have a blend from the 70s that says over five years old. And that was a big deal. Five years, a long time for a whiskey to mature. And now we, we laugh at it, but it's, it, you know, that's, the, that's what's changed. When most molds were first launched, they were five or they were eight or maybe ten. Um, and now we expect sort of a 20, oh, I only drink a gallon 25 year old. So we expect age as a, as a, as a guarantee of, of quality. And I'm not sure if that's fair anymore, especially as over the years, we may have bottled stock that we didn't uh, think was best. We, I mean, and, you know, people who make whiskey, I guess, like we may never bottle the best stuff. I think, yeah, I think for me, the, the trade-off that most distillers would make in scotch whiskey with their if they're going to no age statement would be trying to trade off the fact that the biggest brand on the label is their brand name mccallan glenfiddich glenlivet uh which i would argue is a short-sighted idea i think that the the strongest name uh, the strongest brand on the label of scotch whiskey is the word scotch whiskey that's the strongest brand so if you try to usurp that you you're really risking, I think, um, the integrity that's been built over much longer than, you know, some brand managers been between Heineken and a toilet paper company. So I, I would be worried about the long-term position of, of, really, of selling your brand on noise. Because you think about it, what if you, um, there's a long answer, I'm sorry. But, you know, you go to the shop, I was, I was at the airport. At the airport, there's a lot of no-age statement whiskey in the shelf. Yeah, no, I'm sorry, huh? Yeah. Um, so when you stood there facing the shelf in the, in the whiskey shop at the, at the uh, airport, there aren't a lot of numbers. There's like 
there's names of princes and there's like king this and there's star systems and there's springtide and there's uh, super there's like space related ones and there's norse gods and it's like i i can't even make sense of it and i'm a whiskey enthusiast so what's the other what's the person who doesn't know anything about the category going to do when they come in there they're going to look at the price they're going to shop on price and that is not a future safe model i don't think so i, I hopefully that won't last too long as my small summary to a very long answer <laughs> No, no, I, I, yeah, I, I hear that. I also, I'm curious to, we were actually talking about this a little earlier. We were um, talking about Brook Laddie and their sort of progressive looking bottles and wondering how much maybe some Scotch whiskey is suffering from bottles that look like they maybe don't belong in 2015 that maybe um I, I don't know is there a trend maybe that's coming around the corner that we're gonna start seeing sort of uh, a little a little more modern looking bottles or is it is the older sort of um <laughs> 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 sorry mark's phone just siri just started talking to us um, but are we sort of, or is that just not something that is a priority at this point, um, from the marketing sort of standpoint? I think, well, I mean, my gut says, if you look at the world of wine as only having two different brands, red and white, then your view is quite simple, I think. You know, I'm not saying your view, Jamie. I'm just saying, like, to see things that Scott should be one way, a monolithic way, I don't think is a good idea. I think that differentiation that Brooklady and other brands have, some have a traditional look, some have a modern look, some has a, have a new futuristic look. I think you need all of those. You know, we're talking about a, a small country that has 109 operating malt distilleries. Okay, that's a lot of competition. That's a lot of different things for different people. And, there's, and the people who drink it are generally discerning. So most of them are going to be drinking it for the contents of the bottle or the name or the age or, or the price. Um, so I think, I think there's plenty of room to experiment and, and push the package. I think if we all start looking the same, it's going to be an incredibly boring world of whiskey where we'll have a sweet one, a spicy one, and a smoky one, and that'll be the end. Um, one of the things you mentioned in your article um, had to do with the way whiskey is made. And um, you argued that the, one of the problems with the Japanese um, – one of the problems with the Japanese whiskey um, getting so much praise is really there wasn't any innovation there. It was more the fact that they um, that th they made whiskey in the Scottish style, and therefore, um, really, they they've taken those same traditions and moved them to uh, Japan. And uh, really, the big difference is that maybe they still continue to make it more traditional than uh, Scotch in some respects. But really, the the whiskey is made the same way. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's. One key thing, I guess, uh, that differentiates Scotch from Japanese, other than the fact that it's made a different part of the world and started later and blah, blah, blah. But in the, in the, in the 20s, when, when Japanese whiskey was in its infancy, there was already a, the understanding, uh, the shoulders of giants, the shoulders of Scotch whiskey to stand on. And I think, so Scotch whiskey grew really out of all these small distilleries selling to blenders. Blending was what it was all about. Different distilleries, different owners selling to blenders because the world wanted to drink, or the world, England at that time, wanted to drink uh, blended whiskey. And so that's how they all survived 
They made their one style and they would sell it off. In Japan, when J J J Masataka Takatsuru came to Scotland to learn the techniques of Longmore and other distilleries, he brought them back to Japan and the learning was, well, we can make different styles at one distillery. We don't need to have six different distilleries to make six different styles. We can have a different type of, uh, different shape still. We can have a different length swan neck. We can have a different condenser. We can use different yeast. We can use different washbacks. We can use different waters. Uh, so they learned, because coming in a bit later, they learned from the Scottish model and in some ways bettered it because you could, in one house, in one distillery, you could still call a single malt something that tastes more like a blend, a blend of different styles of spirits, but still a single malt because it's from one distillery made only of malted barley. Um, but what's lost then is the horizontal integration. So a great thing about Scotch whiskey is that all of these companies, um, you know, you look around Scotland, there are 36 different owners. That's, I think, surprising. I hope to most people who would hear this. There's 36 different owners, not one big company. Um, whereas in Japanese whiskey, there's really two, or there's, I guess there's three uh, big owners. And so it's quite, it's, it's different because they're vertically integrated. At one distillery, you can make all the different needs for, for your blend. Uh, we're in Scotland, we all sort of need each other and, and that's, that's developed over time. So it's, it's, a, it's a different thing. But yeah, I guess the point I was making in the article was that in, in some ways they adhere and respect the traditional methods even more than we do in Scotland, where we're, we're some distilleries that are being built today in Scotland very happy to use the most up-to-date uh, heating techniques or condensing techniques, um, whereas in Japan, or fermenting techniques, where in Japan they, they would insist that a new distillery to use wooden washbacks, for example. So, I don't know if that's innovative. I think that's more just it's just traditional and valuing the things that uh, they choose to value. Yeah, and we've talked about this on the podcast before with um, Japan has the pure malts, which is, Sam, what you're saying, that the pure malts are 100% malted barley, but they come from different distilleries. Um, so you're getting a different range of flavors because there's different still sizes, different grains. Uh, some are peated, some aren't, uh, which, which is done in Scotland as well. But just that the fact that they come from different distilleries gives you uh, a different kind of flavor. Uh, versus in, in Scotland, you would never blend single malts unless you made them a blended malt, right? That's what, yeah, but we've done that for years. I mean, the first, we're pretty sure, as historians and people who've written about whiskey, are pretty sure that the first uh, blend in Scotland was actually just a mixture of malts. Um, and today, you know, brands like Monkey Shoulder, those are, that's a blended malt. That's different malts mixed together. Um, so yeah, that's, I mean, them doing in Japan isn't that innovative. Um, it's, it's actually quite traditional. Yeah. And the other um, question I had for you is what is your, um, what are your thoughts on single barrel uh, whiskey from Scotland? Because this is, uh, you know, pretty, you know, in, in bourbon, we have a lot of single barrels, right? In, in Scotland, we don't generally release them, but Belvini does. Belvini has like the 12 and the 16, which I know is very limited in marketplace-wise, but you guys do release um, single barreled whiskey, um, uh, scotch, which is interesting, right? Because scotch is all about kind of blending and getting different flavors and using different casks. Um, but when, you, when single barrels are used, um, they're typically very on their own delicious barrels of whiskey. Um, how do you guys select those single barreled um, 
Uh, single malts. First thing I think is that in the, in the U.S. there are some examples that I can think of where the brand is called single barrel. The bottle is called single barrel, but there's no way that it's the sort from just one single cask. It just doesn't seem right. It seems like just using the, the word single barrel because it sounds more premium as a way to differentiate. Whereas we know, you know, you have a Scotch Malt Whiskey Society bottling in front of you. That is the product of just one single cask. It can never be repeated. So there's something pretty appealing to the enthusiast or the connoisseur about a single cask. You can have six different single casks from Laphroaig, and they'll all taste slightly different, and that's exciting and, and, and cool. And yeah, of course, if you want to build a brand like Laphroaig, you have to blend them together to make something consistent so that every to every Christmas when I go buy a bottle, it tastes the same. Um, but Balvenny, Balvenny, David Stewart, even in 1993, when he decided to launch the um, single barrel uh, it was quite forward-thinking and to this day we're still the only distillery that has a core range single barrel release there's no other scotch distillery that has an ongoing uh, proprietary single cask in their range so it was a brave thing to do then and david's a modest guy so i've asked him about it in the past he's humble and says things like oh well you know the boys of the distillery they do a good job day in day out i said no come on seriously uh well, no, you know, the distillery, as long as you put Balvenny into good wood, the results are always good. But then you, you know, you, you roll your eyes, but then you realize, actually, he's kind of being serious, which is why we can do the single barrel. If you put Balvenny into a first fill American oak barrel for 12 years, you're pretty sure going to get a, a certain result. And that's why we have now the single barrel 12-year-old uh, first fill American oak. A sherry cask, if you put Balvenie in a sherry cask for 15 years, you're pretty much going to end up with a nice tasting malt. They'll all be different, uh, they'll all be unique and unrepeatable, but you can probably package it. You could you could plan 15 years ahead based on that. And I think there's a lot of distillers in Scotland where it would be harder to do that without having full control of the wood. So he's, in our case anyway, he's had the liberty to be in charge of sort of how many casts of what uh, we fill really since 1962, I guess really since 1974 when he took over the role as uh, whiskey stocks manager. So what else about single barrels? I, yeah, it's the best way to really get to know a distiller. I think if you, if you fall in love with Klein Leash or something, you can go buy the 14-year-old Diageo bottling of Klein Leash, which is very nice. Um, but it really, if, to get to know a distillery, the best thing is to go buy a Hogshead, go buy a First Fill Bourbon, go buy a signatory bottling, go buy an independent bottling uh, from different types of casks of a given distillery and see how it fares for you. Do you like it in all types of wood? You know, that, that's, that's how you really get to know the DNA, the primary pigments of whiskey making are single cast. So get to know those primary pigments. It's an exciting thing, I think. Um, what about um, cast strength scotch? We don't see a lot of cast strength scotch. We are big fans of ca of of ca anything cast strength. Cask strength, probably. I would I would guess that in in Ontario the tax would be quite punitive to have a cast strength whiskey. Yeah, but I mean, just generally, like in Scotland, is there there's a lot more cast strength scotch, I assume. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, in, independent bottlers traditionally would bottle casks at the strength that come out of the cask because it costs money to add water and filter it. So traditionally, just keeping it, you know, raw cask or keeping it uh, unfiltered and, and no water added is, is the way that most, a lot of enthusiasts like to drink their whiskey, or at least to have the whiskey. I mean, I, I, I buy bottles that are high strength or, or a single cask that are cast strength, but I generally will add water before drinking it. Um, 
and at the same time, I've got nothing against bottles that are 40%, 43%, 46%, 60%. It just depends on your mood. I mean, your palate's going to be different every day anyway. And why are you drinking? Are you drinking for an academic exercise? Then, yeah, you probably want a cast strength. Are you drinking for pleasure? Then, yeah, you have it whatever you want. Milk, orange juice, water, ice. Cast strength, not cast strength. We're, we're, we're quite lucky everywhere except totalitario that we're able to... Uh, have a real choice. Well, actually, you know what? You're the you're, you're probably the best person for me to ask this. So, tell us about sherry casks and how they're actually typically make vinegar. Yeah, that's a that's a timely question too. I was just in Spain trying to learn about sherry because all the all all the whiskey companies use the word sherry casks, which actually means nothing. When we were there, the most of bodega owners that we met were like sherry cask. Well, that's it's nonsense. What they need, what you should be saying is Spanish oak. And it's interesting because Brian Kinsman, who's the apprentice of uh, David, or he's now apprentices, really reducing uh, his, his role. He, he's now yeah, the malt master of Glenfiddich and Grants and the sort of head whiskey maker of the company. David just works on Balvenie. Um, but Brian's always said that um, the most important ingredient in the maturation of those styles of whiskey is what we tend to call or uh, sherry cask whiskeys isn't the sherry it's the wood so the wood is what's giving most of the flavor and that with each fill that will change um so whether it's oloroso sherry or fino or peter jimenez or whatever it is it's slightly slightly different but the real difference is all about the wood so it was interesting that when i went to spain i brought uh, colleagues of mine to spain when met these Whiskey, these sherry makers and went into their bodegas and one of the first things the one guy said was um, Spanish oak. Spanish oak is what, what matters. European oak that's, doesn't even make sense. It's almost like it doesn't exist. European oak doesn't make sense. Sherry casks doesn't make sense. Spanish oak had previously held X. That's what you should be saying. So that was a good learning right off the bat. Um, but also how is sherry is made. It's basically it's a wine. It's an oxidized wine. There's all sorts of different flavors that, you know, sometimes you crave a sherry cask whiskey. You must have that. Both of you must have that feeling like, oh, you know what? Tonight I can really go for a heavily sherried bowl more. Well, sometimes I would argue now having been to Spain, the best thing to do when you have that craving is just have a bloody sherry because it's so satisfying. <laughs> it's, it's, it's cheaper. It's, the stuff is so cheap and it's, it's really delicious. A nice Oloroso sherry. Uh, it's just gorgeous. It's just gorgeous. You know, the, the hilarious part is I, I, you know, we have different guests on the show, and Glenford Jameson occasionally co-hosts, and um, he's always like, I like sherry finished cast, but like, why don't I just drink sherry? Because like, a lot of the people that are currently drinking sherry, his quote directly is like, they're dying because they're old grandmothers. <laughs> and I should like be a sherry drinker if I'm in. Exactly. Sure. I, I'm, I'm on board with that. But that also relates to what you were saying about um, what they're actually making in Spain for the whiskey industry. The whiskey industry keeps that in, like, sherry producers afloat, for sure. Um, we're a pretty steady, reliable customer. So their responsibility is to try and make a wine that is to our specs, I guess, or, or the same way they've been making it, depending how long the relationship's been there. But I know one of our suppliers, who's, you know, we, we're, we're a company that uses only Spanish oak, from I think three different suppliers and so we went to visit two of them and they matured one of them anyway matures for two years uh, his Olorosos 
and the other one will do a whole variety of different years. And then once that's done, either it goes to bottling, which is probably a 10%, or it goes to sherry, I uh, sorry, to sherry vinegar, or it disappears down the drain. So I do encourage I do encourage all of us to buy a bottle of more than one bottle more than one bottle at Christmas, please, because it helps. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it's actually really nice stuff. It's got this reputation, but because everyone's used to that that dry uh, fino style, which isn't to everyone's liking. It's quite sour, but for the right mood, I think it's delicious. But it's not for everybody. But there are sweet styles. There's dry styles. There's, it's just it's a it's a whole world that is worth uncovering. I think, especially if you if you like whiskey and like sherry style whiskeys the chances are you will like that style of, of wine as well yeah and they like age sherry for decades like sometimes oh, yeah. 80 years Definitely. or more because no one's buying it <laughs> <laughs> well so i interrupted um what's um so what's coming out of belvini that you're really excited about we're still doing the ton series so we we upscaled and well the first time was only 336 bottles, so uh, David upscaled to 2,000 liters from batch two till batch uh, nine of ton 1401, and then we upscaled four times uh, to an 8,000 liter ton for ton 1509. So we, that's, it's basically it's a marriage of whiskeys from 1966 to 91, 92, nothing younger than 21 years old, um, married together in a, in a big ton that sits in our warehouse uh sits there for a, a few months just you know whiskey's in there getting to know each other and it's been it's been quite successful people like it everyone tastes different every every ton has been slightly different and david does that on purpose using different casks obviously he's going to do that anyway on such a small scale um but that that's i think batch two is coming out soon although again canada might be unlucky um but it's also as it is it's, it's quite a rare it's quite a rare whiskey, and you have to fight to get it. In most cases, you have to let your retailer know that you want it. So that, that's a challenge. But that's uh, what else have we got? There are some experiments around something uh, at 21 years that we might uh, continue experimenting with, see if we can do something around that. Uh, and then also, I mean, David Stewart is still spending a lot of time selecting casks and earmarking casks for future use so there, there's certainly uh, discussions about what we could do around that and you know to sort of gather all of his years of knowledge um through a liquid form would be pretty cool so he's you know he's, he, he does about 100 days of work a year just on balvenie so he does double wood he does caribbean cask he does all the live vat, the vattings of caribbean cask he knows is the single barrels selections the ton 30 40 he's doing all of that um but also meanwhile sort of going through stocks and ledgers and the, the online the you know the computer system to see what cast we have and earmarking things for, for future interesting use which is exciting and i look forward to getting samples from him to see what we've got in store so yeah, there's lot there's lots on the go for sure, especially with a legend like that. Yeah, no, that, that yeah, absolutely. David Stewart is a definitely legend in the um, the industry. Um, if um, if somebody was traveling to Scotland right now, what would you recommend? Like, so somebody from North America, no idea. Like we we all know we know Dalwini, we know Belvini, we know Glenfiddich, we know 
you know, our, our Highland Parks and our Macallans, what would you recommend we buy in Scotland? Like, if you were a traveler, you can't get it anywhere else. Uh, especially because you can't get most of them in Canada. I would definitely try to get the Sherry Cast 15-year-old uh, single-barrel Belvedere because it's strictly allocated, but there's more in the UK. So that's that's the first thing to buy. When you're done doing that, um, I, I have friends from Canada who are coming over, family friends from Canada who are coming over, and I've told them they have to go to Glen Goyne because it's... It's a distillery um, that when I first got into whiskey living in Scotland, when I would go back to, the, to Ontario at Christmas in the summer, there was no uh, there was no Glencoin on the shelves. And then eventually there was a Glencoin 17, and I swear to God, it was me and my friends and family and people I recommended to who were, who were buying the stuff, because otherwise it wasn't really moving, I don't think. Um, but it's, it's a cute distillery. Um, it's easily accessible from the central belt from Glasgow or from Edinburgh even. Um, and it straddles, it's interesting, it straddles the Highland line. So the old line between Highlands and Lowlands, it straddles that line where the distillery is in the Highlands, but the warehouses are in the Lowlands. So that's kind of cool. Uh, they also, they use zero peat. There's absolutely no uh, phenolic content in their barley. So it's just the pure, they, I think they have some tagline, like the pure taste of malt or something. But just it's just a nice, chewy, fudgy whiskey that if, if you're not, if you're new to whiskey, or even if you just want to be reminded what whiskey is really all about, that's what it is. It's a malt-based spirit, and I think going tends to capture that quite well. Thank you, Sam, for being coming on. Really appreciate having you on, and a lot of great information on single malt scotch. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. It was a pleasure, guys. Thank you both so much, and I hope your dreams are empty. <laughs>